time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4.6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4.7 states wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. All that getting get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to get involved in the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live audio at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage in Kester Live Audio. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream playing there. You can go to bb2me.com, that's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening, the stream from Ghana. Or you can download the TuneIn Radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn Radio is a free app. In that tune-in search engine, you can type in Time for an Awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening radio program. Got the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us in the email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening radio program. With the fan page on Facebook and Time for an Awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs. On Time for an Awakening media, interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace and our partnership with the BB Toomey. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to time for an awakening media it's 707 here on this uh raw and rainy sunday evening here in the city of philadelphia and you're in the sunday edition of time for an awakening uh we were scheduled to have a special guest join us this evening uh, <laughs> uh he did text me and uh it might be a little um tricky for him to get loose from his prior engagement but I'm not worried because if he he doesn't join us today, then we'll try to have him on next week or the week after. Um, we'll talk a little bit about uh, that and uh, a lot of other things because we'll be in open forum this evening. So you can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word. From our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, 
our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs> Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother. 
From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's uh, 7.13 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Uh, before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm um, resting up from our, our, you know, fantastic experience in uh, Jackson, Mississippi with uh, Brother um, Patrick Lumumba and, and his team of the uh, the Toronto Pratt Gun Club and, and really um, crystallizing some thoughts based off of that, you know, that um, wonderful historical, you know, um, walkthrough of Jackson. You know, uh, Richard, uh, before I kind of pick your brain and get some thoughts, we'll be an open forum this evening because uh, one of the guests that was at the Building Power Summit was scheduled to join us this evening, but I knew it was going to be tricky because he's uh, he's running for mayor in Memphis. That's uh, Judge Joe Brown was was uh, scheduled to join us this evening. But, uh, yeah, in fact, he might pop in here at any time. But if he does it, we'll get him on uh Hopefully next week, because um, I know that he's uh, he's campaigning. He texted me earlier uh, today and kind of let me know it might be a little tricky him breaking away. But he did break away Saturday when he came down to the uh, the Building Power Summit, Richard. And it was uh, it was it was interesting some of the things he stated during his uh, his time speaking. Yeah, I, I was looking forward to following up on that. Yeah, he. Uh, uh, I'll probably uh, talk to him again this evening and uh, kind of get a, an idea of because uh, um, I'd, I'd want to get me on on a Sunday instead of a Friday uh, because I know Friday might be a little you know tricky for him being that he's in the middle of what he's doing. Sunday right. might be a little, a little more you know available with a little more freedom. So we'll we'll get it kind of nailed down. Yeah, and it was a lot of um, you know um, the conference had a lot of. Um, not just interesting, but um, powerful presentations that was um, presented from, you know, this perspective that I'm saying helped me um, frame, you know, just being in Memphis and and with Brother um, Patrick wanted to kind of emphasize, besides the work they've done, and emphasizing um, Chukwe Lumumba and his experience in going to Jackson as a part of the Republic of New Africa. And then becoming mayor of Jackson, and now his son being mayor. And we're going to have an interesting author on uh, in a couple of weeks uh, dealing with this particular subject. So it'll be kind of interesting to bring this whole conversation full circle. Because right. we, we've been talking about this for quite a while now, almost since we uh, had the uh, discussions around the 72 convention right. about uh, dealing with this particular issue. Uh it's one of the most paramount issues that the black community is facing now. Uh, developing conscious leadership to move our people forward, and you know when when I when I use that term, Richard, you you know that I'm not talking about a democratic and republican leadership in the fashion of this Western government. 
because if this system is here or is or if it fails tomorrow, our people still need leadership to to move our people in another direction or forward. Put it that right. way. So conscious leadership is needed. I don't care where we are. It's needed. It's a must. We can't have our people running willy nilly, uh, uh, starting their own agendas, uh, following other people's agendas, following Western culture. That's how we find ourselves in this predicament now. And thinking, yeah. thinking that we're in one position and we're in another, thinking that we have freedoms when we're a colonized people. It, you know, it's it's a lot of the issues dealing with this. Yes, that is definite. That's one of the, uh, I think, you know, crystallizing, you'll hear me you know, for now, you know, kind of reemphasizing, maybe bringing back to the point that you're raising because and um, the conference um, helped me, you know, you know, like you said, and us kind of having our discussions about, you know, the the whole thing of having conventions, looking at our self interest, but um, also, I guess I'm gonna call it two strategic objectives. You know, um, whether we're um, moving towards first class citizenship or we're looking for self-determination and now I'm, you know, looking at the history of Jackson and, 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 you know, the conference, you know, and being in Mississippi, Mississippi being a critical point. um, It helped me understand that those two objectives, when we're talking about conscious leadership um, or leadership period, um, it, it, it crystallized whether, which one of these objectives are we, you know, or if I may personalize it, which one do I represent and which one do we represent? I mean, and, and I don't know if you would agree, Elliot, but there is a difference between um, moving for first-class citizenship, which raises a question, and moving for self-determination. Yeah, I, listen, I do agree. It's a huge difference. Um I got some things that I want to uh, kind of introduce, you know, during the time that we're in open forum here in reference to not only that subject, but several other subjects. Um, but again, Richard, just on just thinking back, I, I want to thank Brother Patrick, uh, Brother Nick Bezel, the uh, CEO of the uh, El Madronimo Pratt Pistol and Gun Club, Sister Crystal. I mean, every that everybody down there that was involved in, and uh, organizing the event and uh, and showing us a, a, a good time down there. And not only a good time, showing us the activism of the people on the ground. Because there was a lot of groups that came there that was represented from other parts of the country mm-hmm. that was doing grassroots activism. Now, I don't know, you know, some of the elected officials, especially in Jackson, were invited uh, by Brother Patrick. Uh, they decided not to come, and they decided not to send representation, which I know was kind of disappointing to him, but it didn't stop uh, him or, <laughs> excuse me, any of the other brothers and sisters from uh, showcasing what they're doing and continuing the work. Uh, they, yeah. The parents of some of the uh, young men that had been abused down there, Jaheim McMillan, his, uh, his mother was there along with, I think that was his aunt, wasn't it, uh, Richard, if I'm not yeah. mistaken? Uh, the young man's parents that uh, uh, had urinated behind the, the car 
when uh, his mother was in the office building. And I guess, you know, he's a young man. He's 10 years old. He couldn't hold it. So he opened up the door and kind of was, was caught urinating and they arrested him. I think his his parent, his mother was there. And uh, the other young man, it was the um, uh, FedEx driver that was shot at uh, down there uh, in Mississippi. I think his mother was there also. Right. So, excuse me. So, um, you know, and they were there talking about the activism of the people. They said that they didn't receive much help from political sources, but they received a lot of help from the on the ground activism of uh, of the people involved in a lot of the groups that was represented there. Uh, and you know, go ahead. I, I I appreciate the format that the the organizers um did utilizing Jackson, you know, utilizing Jackson and you know all the historical sites that they um made a part of the conference to give a context to the history of Jackson, the political history of black folks in Jackson, and then ending with, um, as you were saying, this grassroots organizing, going back to the place where they um, distributed the water and talking to the community residents and seeing, you know, one year later, um, you know, that year before, you know, when Jackson had his water challenges, um, a lot of those um people who attended the conference, they they're not, they may have been from Mississippi or, as you say, other parts of the country, but they were not from Jackson. But to have the organizers who did go to Jackson, um, Brother Patrick and them, to go back to the same location and engage, I think that that part of, of demonstrating historical context and activism context as a part of the conference is a you know interesting and and, and I think important organizing um, development. Yeah, and you know, talking with some of the people that they had helped previously, and seeing right. that they the people the people themselves acknowledge that they hadn't received any attention since the men and women, the activists had been down there prior to. <clears throat> that uh, people were still living in some of the same situations. And, and you know, Richard, listen, we come from South Philly. I mean, we wasn't born with no, I mean, we come from the neighborhood. Right. And and we didn't see poverty. We we lived among it. You know, our parents were the working poor. I mean, we didn't have no money. But, right. you know, some of the conditions that our people are living in down there is, is uh, it's eye-opening. Put it that way. It's eye-opening. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it kind of uh, shines a light on the problem, Richard, the problem of what's going on. When you've got areas that that are overwhelmingly black and you have blacks in quote-unquote positions of an influence and power in, in the same areas that control the tax base, uh, that control businesses in the community, that have a degree of control, and these things are going on. That the city plan you you showed me the, the, all of the city planners in Jackson were black, and to have these conditions in areas 
you know, where our people are is, is unacceptable as far as I'm concerned. It's just, it just is. It raises a lot of questions about, um, you know, that whole thing of, you know, as I said, the, the crystallization of, is this movement, well, is this a part of the movement towards first-class citizenship? Um, are we there yet? And, you know, when you can have not only the city planners, but the, uh, from what we were told, uh, all the council persons in Jackson are black. So you got a black mayor, you got black city, uh, um, uh, black city council, you got a um, black planning um, commission, you know, um, and then to hear that the poss- the gentrification is still a challenge in a um, city that's what over seventy percent black, Jackson. Um, yeah, it's it's it, it leaves a lot to be considered when we're talking about wh- where we are now, where are we now and where are we going and under what, what's our objective? What's the end game here? And, and you know, it, and it, it just uh, shines a light on the issue that we have to make these people explain themselves. Uh, generally, these black elected officials, the, the neighborhood or the, pup, the people they represent never get a chance to talk to them, Richard. If you call their office, you can't reach them. If anybody answers the phone, it's usually an aide. And you never talk to the person that represents you. The aide don't represent you. So you never really get a chance to talk to them. Unless you see them on, well, you'll see them on the television. You'll definitely see them when they're running for office. Or you'll see them if, if if a, uh, any of the listening audience has a black talk station in their area or urban theme station, and it don't necessarily have to be black talk. They might go on there. But generally, and I'm just using Philadelphia as an example, when the elected officials come on there, you can't talk to them. They don't take calls. So the people never really get a chance to talk to these people. They just see what they're doing. And then they rely on the media to kind of hype it up where it's a popularity contest. So, you know, if, if people want to vote, but they want they want these people in office because they're the first in this. Uh, uh, they're the first black woman. They're the first black man. Uh, first black to ever have this particular office. So when they get in there, they really don't pay attention to really what's going on and what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's you know that's you know emphasizing again you know why um, for me and you know being um, tied. It also shows why history is so important to us and the history of our location as it relates to um, black people, regardless of the, you know, what side of the struggle, why it's so important to contextualize and for us to really speak from um, our own historical center in these in these cities or, or in these counties. You know, we, we were, we talked about, um, you know, what happened in say um, Tennessee or we talk about, you know, what's happening to the farmers. You know, when we talk about these things, how does this relate to where you are and and to the direction that we're going? Um, it's important. You know, I think it really emphasized how much um, our historical understanding 
in relationship to these objectives or to our political education, you know, um, to be able to know what we have to do to, you know, do the kind of organizing um, to be the kind of support. Um, we have to be for each other from a political or even more importantly, from a power dynamics, because you can't, going back to your point, you can't have conscious leadership if you can't be conscious yourself and and know, and you can't be active yourself. And even if you don't go out to those council meetings, have those kind of conversations um, with individuals from that perspective. And the media is supposed to support that, uh, I, I think. I don't know, Elliot. I said, you know, especially when you can't, you know, when you live in your grind day to day, you need um, advocacy, media, um, information outlets to, to assist you in being able to, if nothing else, raise the right questions. I agree. The um, Richard, um, on the 18th, of uh, this month, of September, the NAACP, uh, according to their site, I'm going to read this header, NAACP unveils legislative priorities ahead of the Congressional Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference. Now, they had their legislative conference a couple of days ago. Mm. I'm talking about the Black Caucus. Right. So the NAACP unveils their priorities ahead of the, uh, the the caucus. And let me read the, just a couple of paragraphs here. It was for the immediate release, was press release, September the 18th. Uh, today, Derek Johnson of the NAACP CEO released the NAACP's comprehensive legislative policy agenda for the remainder of 2023, which addresses critical concerns faced by black America. The agenda was released ahead of the 52nd Annual Congressional Black Caucus Legislative Conference, highlighting the key priorities impacting black communities in the United States, which it would include and not limited to ending mass incarceration, advancing economic equity, reaffirming support for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and assuring equal access to free and fair elections through the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Now, Richard, that's what they said that their priorities are for the remainder of the year. Uh, Ending mass incarceration, uh, support for George Floyd Policing Act, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, just think about this part about mass incarceration. As many of our people that had been held, and some of them made transition, and uh, and I'm just thinking about what uh, uh, um, Charles Barron held from Matulu Shakur about three weeks ago to memorial service up there. Uh, after being held political prisoner for almost 40, 50 years, a lot of them being, some of them are being released, and then they pass away a short time later. So those things, how, how are you talking about ending mass incarceration when those names don't come up in conversation? They don't come up when black elected officials are talking. They never come up when the NAACP is referring to anything. None of these people 
that are still behind bars. Names come up. Do you? I know. I know that you noticed that, Richard. Oh, you know, and, and I'm glad you're raising this point because, and, and if you, you know, I'm because I'm tying it to, you know, this theme of the struggle towards first class citizenship compared to self determination. Those names that don't come up, those women and men were about the reason why they were incarcerated was because of self determination. Right. And that's for a people, for black people in America to organize from that perspective. Um, you are, we are enemies of the state. Now, for people who are organizing for uh, equal rights, first class citizenship, you have now, you talk about the George Floyd bill. Right. You talk about what we're going to do about the police. You talk about the John Lewis bill. You talk about um, how do we secure our voting? This is two issues that black folks in America have been wrestling with and been trying to fight for in relationship. Because if you're a first class citizen, maybe I'm misinterpreting. Those are things that you shouldn't be having to struggle about. Now, there's a lot of other things you could struggle about, but those things are uniquely part of the American experience. I don't know if you would agree with that. And that's the reason why you don't hear those who've been incarcerated, because they weren't talking about first-class citizenship. They were talking about we have a right to be self-determining as a people because of our particular experience. Hmm. Yeah, well, it- <laughs> I would have to agree with that because it's kind of it's it's not strange to me that you don't hear their names uh, uh, mentioned. Uh, but none of these men and women, and and you know as much as this, uh, uh, especially now, the white media want to showcase black women all of a sudden. Mm. But uh, every time you look, now I'm quite sure that when he leaves office. He'll do the same thing that Obama and that Trump did is sign that warrant for uh, the apprehension of Asada Shakur. Mm-hmm. I'm quite sure he'll do the same thing. None of these people are mentioned, none of them. But here, one of your priorities to the legislative body is to end mass incarceration, pass the George Floyd Policing Act and the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act. Now, when we played some of the speeches from the NAACP convention up there in Boston, their their overwhelming theme seemed to be mixed in was uh, anti-Semitism and Mm -hmm. ending anti-Semitism. Derek Johnson talked about it. We played the footage. Uh, 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 Shoot, the, the, uh, the historian, his name just slips my mind. Gates, he talked about it. They even had Meek Mills representing a, a certain dynamic of black uh, people, uh, what they consider a younger dynamic, talking about anti-Semitism. So that was basically overwhelming, overarching theme. I didn't hear any mention about mass incarceration or anything. I was listening for a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. And plus, you had your your keynote speaker was Hillary Clinton, 
and you had Robert Kraft, uh, you know, one of those bigoted owners from the NFL. Oh, what the hell? And then you got a nerve to say that these are your policies? See, who are you playing with? See, you know, generally white folks think you're less intelligent than they are. That's a reality. I don't care whether black folks don't like that statement or not. They do. But, you know, it really gets to me when you got some of your people that play these same silly games. If you're for these things, then be for them. Don't tell your people one thing and then act on another. Now, they released this agenda, Richard, six to, to September the 18th, which was maybe four or five days before this uh, Congressional Black Caucus legislative event down in, in uh, Washington. Now, that's what they said that their themes were. Ending mass incarceration, the George Floyd Policing Act, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Now, let me read uh, from the CBC what they said, the annual legislative conference, Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, uh, advancing the global black community by developing leaders, informing policy, and educating the public. Now, that's their thing. See, Richard, listen, a lot of these things sound good, but it's not what they're doing. That's the, that's the key, man. We got to think critically. We got to listen to what these people are saying and then follow what they're doing. Now, advancing the global black community. Now, who is that? Now, listen, mm-hmm. I know who that is and you do, too. Because mm-hmm. we've been talking about that. But they don't, when have they uh, even addressed this type of what they consider the global black community? I can sit there, listen, I consider the global black community as our brothers and sisters that have been scattered uh, through that, uh, 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 that slave trade that they had, that's been scattered all throughout the islands, all throughout South America. It's more blacks in Brazil than it is totally in the United States. And our brothers and sisters on the continent. All of that is part of the global black community. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Now, oh, yeah. when are they, when this is a part of your planks, when have they ever addressed this in seriousness? I don't know when. Why are you putting this on paper if you don't intend to do it? Who are you trying to fool? You ain't fooling white people because they're giving you your marching orders. These people are not acting independently, Richard. They're getting marching orders. So you must be trying to fool your own people. Advancing the global black community, developing black leaders, informing and educating the public. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Richard, I'm reading this. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, let me go a little further here. The Congressional Black Caucus is thrilled to present the highly anticipated 52nd Annual uh, annual Legislative uh, Conference, ALC, taking place on September the 20th to the 24th, it ends today, at the prestigious Walter E. Washington Convention Center. Under the, the theme of Securing Our Democracy, protecting our freedoms, and uplifting our culture. This conference will be extraordinary, a gathering of visionaries, activists, and leaders who are shaping the future of African Americans and the global black community. You you hear it again, Richard? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The co-chairs of it was uh, Stacy Plaskett. I think she's uh, represented by Alabama. And Raphael Warnock. This year's conference will tackle the pressing challenges that de- define our th- times as they exemplify a dedication and commitment to advancing the rights and well-being of all Americans. Yeah, wait a minute. I thought I'm looking at the Congressional Black Caucus event. But here <laughs> you're talking about all Americans. Mm. I don't think all Americans need their rights. Uh, what does it say here? Let me... The pressing challenges do define our themes and exemplify the commitments to advancing the rights and well-beings of all Americans. And Richard, is uh, quote-unquote all Americans' rights in jeopardy and their well-being? Who, who See, this is what I'm talking about. The language, just like Dr. King said in one of the vignettes I play, about let's get the language right. Mm. What are they talking about? And who are they talking to with this gobbledygook? That, that's an important question you're asking. Who are they talking to um, when you raise these points that they're, who are they, who are they addressing? And, and you mentioned, um, you know, I call, you know, let's call, I would call it the opposition or the, or the, or the support, right? Those who, who are, who they have to seem like, as you said, it, it seems like everybody has to run to a certain place. I don't know, or at least it comes across in the media that a lot of these um, black congressional um, representatives or high profile black representatives, and you will hear me not, you know, emphasize the name, they have to run to a certain place or they go to a certain place. But who do they represent in this global black community that they're trying to develop? Ellie, that when I drill down, they're talking about they want to build a black middle class or black middle income. That's what, that's, that's who they, well, now, but that, I'm glad you mentioned that Richard, because that's who that message is to a certain class of black people. Right. And to fool the others into thinking they're doing something. Right. Or, or being, um, um, subjectively overtly very, um, nonchalant that we don't care about, and, you know, when I look at the numbers, you say, when we look at our area, like in Philadelphia, t- over 25%, 28% of the population is making less than $25,000 a year income. So that's a quarter of the population. I would say, I think we can nationalize. I think if we look in areas um, across the city, towns where black people are, large and small, that's number that that fix holds true. And I think you read numbers as far as businesses that are developed through um, major cities and it didn't get higher than three percent of black businesses. So I, I don't know if I'm correcting that, but that's so we, we have to be clear. Who are they talking to and who who should they be talking to? Because that larger population it seems that would be a population that don't vote. That'd be a population affected by um, the police. That 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 is a population that is victimized. Even though all it it, it, it victimizes even those who are in that middle income and above bracket just as well. And we use the symbol of 
Henry Louis Gates trying to get in his house. And the woman said, I don't know where that nigga was. You know, I don't know him. And the cops say, I don't know. He's out of here. And he had to have a sit down bar party with the president and the police. Do that make sense? (laughs) Right. But he's victimized because the numbers show that people who live in, in stressful areas have to do stressful things. Uh, I don't know if, if that meets, you know, the point that you're making in re- relationship to that conference. I'm just saying, I mean, I'm just, because I'm, while you're talking, I'm kind of looking over some of these things at the uh, points that they were raising. You know, now Warnock was the chair of this uh this legislative conference that highlighted the caucus and you know him and Booker was supposed to be spearheading that money to the black farmers for debt relief and land loss and it was only five billion dollars Richard only five billion compared to all of this other money that they throw around and he couldn't even get that. He failed at that. You know, you talk to some of these farmers, Richard, and then if you haven't been on our program before, if they could get their hands around the throat of some of these officials, they they do some harm to them. And I, I think you would agree, Richard. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, they did because they, listen, when you got a legacy of a farm that you want to leave to your children, a hundred acre, two hundred acres, sometimes more, and just like I mentioned before, being a farmer is not like another business. You might have a clothing store, Richard, and if you fail, you fail. You better go get a job because generally if a black fail in business, he ain't going to get no more money. These whites, they might fail in business and they can get they can get two, three bites at the apples and get more money. But if you fail, you're out. But farming is different. That's why the money is in the federal budget for farming and for farmers. Because at any time you a, a disaster might happen, uh, natural or, or even, uh, 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 you know, animal, your locust or something might uh, devastate a crop. And then the men need money so they can replenish things and to get more seed and to get back on their feet. That's why it's part of the budget. Other businesses are not part of the federal budget, but farming is. But then black farmers wasn't even getting the money that they were supposed to get. And it was clear that the government discriminated against it. They admitted it. So this money that Biden put in there and he see all of this, they, they, been, they play games with the people, with our people, because they knew that wasn't going to fly anyway with some of these others. Because as soon as it was put in there, white farmers and the banks, if you remember, Richard, Complain right. that they 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 didn't want to do it. White farmers said we ain't. I'm not. Why they getting money and we ain't when they've been getting money all the time. And then the bank <laughs> said we're not interested in giving black farmers debt relief. So all of a sudden <laughs> the money is pulled off the table. And these men that that used their office, if you remember, that was one of his planks getting in office. This Warnock mm-hmm. about he was going to help the black farmers. Then you miserably fail. And you don't have no explanation for them. You just move on. This type uh-huh. of behavior that they're doing is treasonous, Richard. Hey, Elliot, it, it makes me think when you said about the uh, 
the black farmers, which were allocated those funds um, because of their particular, you know, uh, situation. And, and supposedly they're, as you're saying, they're critical as a critical industry to a, America's, um, supposed to be a critical industry to America's um, food sovereignty um, um, security interests, right? But when you said that, it made me think again, and I, I guess for a little while I will continue to have this, our experience in Memphis. Because remember, we uh, went to the uh, the Civil Civil Rights Museum mm-hmm. um, in, in Jackson, and the history about that, how that museum came into being when you said that the farmers, the black farmers were supposed to get this, but the white farmers said, how are they going to get it? And we're not going to get it. Therefore, we're going to hold it up. Well, is it? I don't know if this is an appropriate correlation, but wasn't we seeing two different museums uh, set up side by side? And it was like the same kind of thing. How are you going to set up a museum for them? And you ain't going to set up a museum for us. Yeah, on one side of the same building, you had the Mississippi History Museum, and then on the other side, you had the Civil Rights Museum. And And that was because they said that, you know, because their goal was to put the Civil Rights Museum. And until they got their agreement to do the other one, uh, they weren't going to get that. So it's just the same thing. How are you going to give the farmers uh, a bailout, but you're not going to give us a bailout? Because they're black, because of their unique condition, not because the white farmers needed it, not be and the banks crystallized with that that thing they said. Well, if you give them a what the hell did it go? If you give them a bailout, it will hurt the banks. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't the farmers need the banks? So how would it hurt the banks? Well, because they're giving it to black. Listen, it's all about giving you anything. And it ain't a fact of giving you anything. Because you're entitled to that. Right. You should be. But but to them, it's giving you something. And they're not, that's against their nature. They don't want to do that. They don't want to do anything that's right. They don't have no problem giving the same money to white folks. They give it to them all the time. And you had some of the farmers that was on here, whether it was John Boyd or some of the other farmers, talk about when they go to the extension office, what transpires there. And how they tell whites, oh, we got two or three checks for you. We got checks you. We got checks that you haven't cashed. <laughs> you remember, Richard? Oh, yeah. And then oh, they yeah. go in and say, we ain't got nothing for you. Right to the face. Hey, Miss Boyd, Miss Boyd, she she also made it clear. Yeah, in that regard. Richard, now, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to play a couple of clips here to to go along with, uh, with what I raised in reference to the NAACP re- uh, releasing their agenda for black America. Had nothing, they didn't mention the anti-Semitism, but they sure was the theme, overarching theme when they had their conference. Hmm. And the Black Caucus, who's ending their party, big party today, as is all it is, is a party, ending their party today and what their quote-unquote agenda is. Now, they didn't mention it 
in their agenda here. But if you go to their site and print it out, you know, it's all types of colors of the rainbow. And see, I know what that is. They don't mm-hmm. say it on here. But, I, you know, come on. It, yeah, all you got to do is look at it. You'll see what I mean. I ain't listening audience. Go to their site and pull it down. You'll see what I'm talking about. But let me read this, Richard, because uh, she started this tour about a week ago. Um, and it's continuing as we speak. Because all of them got points that they're hitting. It's an all-out full-court press. And I'm going to use a basketball term. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris launches a Fight for Our Freedom college tour. This is the header. Kamala Harris launches the Fight for Our Freedom college tour to empower young Americans. Now, it says young Americans. But the college tour is dealing with HBCUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, as students return to the campuses nationwide, Kamala Harris is embarking on a month-long tour rallying young people to champion the fundamental rights and freedoms. The, the ambitious initiative dubbed Fight for Our Freedom College Tour will see Harris crisscrossing dozens of campuses in at least seven states. Uh uniting thousands of students in a high-energy, large-scale event. The whirlwind tour will spotlight uh, critical issues uh, from reproductive freedom to voting rights to LGBTQ plus equality and book bannings. The Bryce president aims to engage and empower the next generation to be on the forefront of these battles. Uh, this generation is crucial to the urgent issues that are at stake for our future right now, says Harris, emphasizing the statement issued by the White House. My message to the students is clear. We're counting on you. We need you. You are everything. The Fight for Our Freedoms Tour will encompass historically black colleges uh, in several states. During her visit, uh, she will outline the work required to safeguard these crucial liberties. So, okay. Now, if you notice, Richard, none of that I read says black students. Mm. But at Near the bottom, it talks about this, the tour will go to black colleges and the fight for our freedoms. Yeah, she's not talking about white kids. Ooh, wh- what freedoms are they fighting for, Richard? Mm. What freedoms are white kids fighting for? You tell me. Because maybe mm-hmm. I'm missing something. This is directed at your children. These agenda points. LGBTQ equality, uh, uh, reproductive freedom, climate control and gun safety, and the banning of books. Uh, yeah, okay, the banning of books, gun safety, and all that. That's not really the the, the overarching theme. Is this LGBTQ equality form? 
It's a full court press dealing with our youth in this, Richard. Mm. You've seen it in that NAACP when they had Meek Mills talking about uh, anti-Semitism and how he's going to try to reach his peers, right? Right. You see it here where she's going around at these HBCUs. And they're going to be proud to have her because she was a sorry, a soror or whatever. I, would, I don't know too much about those type of uh, uh, Greek letter organizations. Part of the D9. Yeah, yeah but they're going to welcome her and her message. Mm-hmm. You got the Black Caucus having their event that ends today. They got young black expiring, quote unquote, leadership that, that's, uh, that want to see a lucrative business in becoming a political entrepreneur. You see him. You said, remember the guy in Montgomery and what he said in reference to when the, some of the activists went there, seeing that he was a young black man that just took over that office. And they, in their mind, they said, man, we can get some things done now. So they go to him, and you remember what he said to them in that leaked conversation? Mm-hmm. There you go. But I don't need your support. I, if I can get 30, 30% of white, vote, white votes, I don't need you. He wanted to tell him to kiss his, uh, you know, uh, language. I ain't going to use language necessarily. Maybe I'll use it later. But he wanted to tell him to kiss his behind. Mm-hmm. That's basically what he was saying. That's the response that you get from these people that want your vote, that look like you, that come from your community, and they're supposed to represent you. But I'm, I'm beating this drum, Elliot, as you bring these points up from this from this legacy organization, as you said, you know, and tying it back to, you know, the thrust going back to the 72, and I would call it, you know, um, the victory between um, uh, the the pursuit of first-class citizenship and self-determination. But doesn't fight for the slogan. And and these slogans, I mean, these, uh, these titles they're not just whimsical, right? They, they're constructed um, to appeal to a certain group, right? Fight for our freedom. Now, isn't black folks or those in the HBCUs and the um, black uh, students, that um, population uh, and that institution, aren't that the, the population that was um, initially fighting for freedom that the basis of the 13th, 14th, and the 15th Amendment was about? Yeah, I thought that was done already, the, the fight for the freedom, Richard. That, that, that's the point. So here we in 2023, and she's using this now as you're implying, because what we're, what we, are we seeing, you know, that that might even just be a, a smokescreen? And it's, of course, it's communicating directly that that's why we're you're you're this youth population the future right this particular group right this particular generation we're telling you we need you to be acclimated to fight for our freedom but the hour when you get into the details well who is the hour it's these other political units that are trying to get freedom uh, you know, right? I mean, these other interest groups, but but it's 
but it's saying, the banner is saying, but you ain't got your freedom yet. After, well, this is 18, that was 1864, from 1864 to 2023. Is that over a century? <laughs> is it, yeah. You know, and, 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 and does that not align with that you don't have first-class citizenship? Because if you did, you wouldn't be fighting, for, fighting freedom. for freedom. You'd be fighting for other things. Exactly. Exactly. And I, you know what? I didn't realize until I was looking at some things today. You know, you, you're always learning. But, you know, if you look at that Voting Rights Act of 1964, 65, mm-hmm. it's only a few states that still are under that. You know, I'm thinking that that's a law that, that's, you know, that everybody has to abide by that's on the books. But according to the law, if they reach certain criteria, they could kind of opt out of it, get a bailout, they called it. Mm-hmm. It's only a few states that are still operating under that the language of the, the 64 or 65 Voting Rights Act. So when you got all of this stuff going on where these states are changing what they're doing in regards to voting, and black folks are scratching their heads saying, well, wait a minute, we already did this before. We got to do it again. Mm. But it was all in those languages. that They never intended to do right by you. I don't care whether you're talking about 1864 when they first put those laws in. And the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment came shortly after that. From the 60s during the, what they call civil rights era, when they introduced the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act, they never intended to do right by you. It's always loopholes in the language. It always is. So you're continually in a fight to have your rights respected. Is that what we want for our children? To be just like Minister Furrican says and played in one of the clips, and I might play it during the break. To keep passing this down to generation after generation. Is that what we want for our children? But <laughs> a constant struggle with these Europeans to, to be treated as a human being. Are you kidding me? Our focus shouldn't be on what they're doing at all. Our focus should be on organizing ourselves. Because if we organize ourselves, this man is no issue or problem. And he knows it. And he knows it. That's why his objective is to keep you disorganized. And that's where these book burnings or these book of uh, these curriculum challenges or these historical narrative changes come into effect, right, Elliot? Because uh, it's only when you talk about, you know, in order to have conscious leadership, you have to have conscious people because conscious people pick conscious leaders, right? Um, and in order to have conscious leaders, you have to have educated and informed leaders, um, because it's only educated and informed leaders that can be able to discern whether the person who was that you were selecting to carry your agenda, to formulate or, or carry your policy into the into the battleground 
of the congressional or the state or the local arena of politics, you need them to be very clear of what your interest is. But in, unless you're clear, you can't get that. But, you know, the thing that got me, getting me, Elliot, as you raised this point, they're talking about voting rights. And you, rent, you mentioned the sub-interest groups. But one thing that I didn't hear, even though it was mentioned in these bills, whether um, both of these bills, George Floyd and, 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 and John Lewis, how many black males cannot vote because they have prison records? And how many states do not allow you to vote? Now, you would think that's something uniquely that would be centered as a issue if you were fighting for our freedom, because isn't that regardless of, and a lot of black males, a lot of black people who are in prison are not in prison for serious crime, for pathological crimes, I'll say that. Should they be denied citizenship because they have a prison record? Should they be denied the the right to vote because they have a prison record? But do you see them advocating for them and that freedom? As a not not in a serious way. They might mention them as a backdrop to conversation, but no, it's no serious activism in reference to that from them. Maybe I'm I'm missing maybe I'm missing maybe I'm missing the mark, but it seemed like that would be as much as these other interest groups, that would be that relates to our historical experience, right? Because the prison um population grew. But wait a minute, Elliot. Hold on, let me get because a lot of those guys that are in in that that meet that social economic class, they they are not a part of the black middle income, black middle class group, and they want to grow the black middle class globally. They want to grow it on the continent. They want to grow it on the islands because they become that buffer class. I'll stop. Let me and, stop. And, and, and that's not a part of our culture, Richard. No. Where somebody is always oppressed. See, in this capitalist society, somebody always got to be oppressed. That's how it works. That's not the type of culture that we came from. And it's, it's kind of ironic here that uh, one of their missions here, that the uh, NAACP is securing our democracy, protecting our freedoms, uplifting our culture. When do they, you know, as far as they're concerned, our culture is slavery. Mm. Our people came from slaves. They say it. Some of them say it. And some black people buy into that narrative. When if you're talking about the, the, the narrative of time, that that period of our enslavement happened two, three, four hundred years ago. And if you're talking about the narrative of time, that's a that's a blink of an eye. We didn't come from slaves. Our people were enslaved. Sure, that's a part of our historical narrative. That's not our history as a slave. But according to them, that's all it is. And we've been fighting ever since to be equal with whites. Mm-hmm. That's what the whole struggle is. 
We up from slavery and fighting to be equal with whites. Should that be our struggle at all to fight to be equal with whites? Are you kidding me? That's 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 and and every time we um, a segment of the population, and now I'm at the point of, you know, maybe only one percent said we should be fighting for self determination and have input and influence because the it resonates yes because the struggle for rights to be equal with someone who was who was your natural oppressor oppressor who was presently the dominating decision makers in this society you've been fighting with for, against them that fight ain't easy obviously if we're still fighting for our freedom at this generation looking into the future compared to you're fighting for self-determination. You're fighting based off of your sovereign thinking to operate within your own self-interest, not as individuals, but as a people group. That's a different kind of fight. (laughs) That's a choice. Wow. Richard, listen, before we take a break, Good. Well, say, say that again. Guess who I see? I think. Say that again. I'm sorry. I um I think, brother, um, Judge <laughs> Brown. Just... Yeah, I see him just by my Judge Brown. Yes, sir. Listen, we. Look, I, <laughs> I told the folks that you you'd probably be able to join us once you got free. We're gonna take a brief break. Stay on the line with us. We're gonna take a brief break, and when we come back. Uh, we're going we right. to talk with you a little bit. We're going to take a brief break. Our guest has joined us, uh, Judge Joe Brown. We're going to take a brief break. And you can join the conversation, too. Any of the listeners with a question or comment by dialing 215-490-9832. 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. Brother Richard, on time for an awakening media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. 
Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu Black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu Black communities, escape the digital plantation now, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com. Store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregationists, people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far it's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go, but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Graf Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. 
for virtually everyone you name. I can give you a sorted piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian emancipation proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian civil rights bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. For an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 817 here in the city of Philadelphia on the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. I guess uh, kind of seen an opening in that schedule to join us this evening and happy to have him with us. You know, Richard, we are at the Building Power Summit and on Saturday... Judge Joe Brown, who's running for mayor in Memphis, uh, came down to speak to the brothers and sisters there at the Building Power Summit. And uh, we were trying to talk to him then, but it was a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts. I'm glad he's able to come on the uh, program to uh, help us work through some things tonight. Uh, Judge Brown, how are you, sir? All right, sir. I'm doing well, I suppose. <laughs> Glad to have you join us on Time for Awakening with myself and Brother Richard. Yes, sir, uh, Judge Brown. I was really um, inspired and informed um, on your presentation um, Saturday at the conference. Oh, you like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Judge, let me, before, before we kind of get into a few things, because you said some interesting things dealing with uh, Mason and what's going to be happening down there. Because, um, as I told you before, when we were talking, that we had Tom Burrell on the program. But before we get into any of that, talk about Memphis and why you felt a need in your heart to to run for mayor in Memphis. And, and, and let the people understand your feelings in reference to political leadership, the necessity, the necessity for black conscious political leadership and you running for office in, in uh, Memphis? Well, somebody's got to do it. And I've been around for a while. I've looked at things as they were developing into great possibilities. And I saw them decay into a rot that, predominates today. It's not a good thing. We have so much potential. 
that we abandoned because we spent 50 years glorifying dysfunction. We have gotten away from that half of the equation that says you have an obligation to everybody else. Meanwhile, not abandoning that obligation, you also have the opportunity to do things for yourself. So we have gotten so selfish that we've forgotten our obligation to the cause. We talk about the need for unity, but a lot of us don't understand that that need for unity got badly corrupted into something else that resulted in a lot of snitches and betrayals an exploitation where succinctly we got pimped. Mm. Now, that is something that we have to stop. Memphis is located geographically at a place that is ideal to become the distribution capital of the continent, and it's functioning that way. We have FedEx and a lot of other places that are into the communications thing, the shipment thing, and it's important. We could expand that nationally and internationally. We have the Mississippi River that gives us the opportunity to use modern mito, a high modular hydroelectric generators and produce all the energy we want in combination with wind farms and solar farms and we've got Ford Motor Company and perhaps GM coming down here to build nothing but electric cars. So all of that presents itself as an opportunity for the city to develop. But unfortunately, that won't be passed around because we have a crew that has tried to monopolize the management of the city and they are frankly shoplifting from the city they're stealing resources and they're selfishly exploiting a lot of things that a lot of people pay for and a lot of people earn and a lot of people are cut out they're not gangsters they I think I said this when I was down there. They look like they are ready to audition for a cotillion scene in Atlanta Housewives. <laughs> so, you know, they nibble cheese and crackers and have their pinky fingers stuck out as they sip Chablis in the five-star bars for upscale hotels. And we don't get much out of it except exploit it in a hard time. So somewhere in here, we need to do something about taking back control. Our streets are not safe. They're dangerous. Our economic opportunities can be expanded. There is a need to restore public decency, and these things have to be addressed. But we have those who are not interested in these things and actually fight against them. And in fact, that's the problem I have right now is it's a new media tactic. Don't attack your opponent or your opposition. Just ignore them. 
and maybe they'll go away, but it doesn't always happen because sometimes the people that you want to go away already have public credibility and a viability that you cannot ignore. So I'm told that if media weren't blocking the fact that I was running, it would be a landslide in my favor. And we've got early voting going on in the main election, October 5th. Now, right now, we aren't doing too badly. We seem to be doing well in the exit polls, if not outright leading. And a good percentage of the electorate is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, is the judge running or not? And what about this scandal going over here with this candidate and this other one with this one? And over here, this this guy looks like he's just flat out stealing. So a lot of people want to see what's going on. So we are going through alternative media and venues like the one I'm on right now. Thanks, everybody. We're trying to spread the word. I don't need the money. I would love to be sitting down enjoying retirement, but I can't do that because it's just not in me. So send Brown downtown, take back the town, make it a mecca for everybody around. So we're trying to do that. A vote for me is a vote for yourself. A contribution is a contribution for yourself. So we're trying to make it a people's campaign in the face of too much that is predicated on being able to buy an election, putting up thousands of signs to get name recognition, to conceal the fact that you've done nothing for the people except use them. And that's kind of a hard thing to overcome, but it is what is being tried. So the people look at this and say, wait a minute, is the judge running? Oh, heck, I know what I'm going to do. And that's the end of it. But they're trying to, interestingly enough, the guy is a friend of mine. He's a former city councilman. He's been sick for the last few years. They are actually putting his picture with the name so people will think it's him and not me. The other thing that's kind of crazy is there are 17 people in the race, and they will put up 16 pictures and 16 names and exclude mine. But that's because they're trying to manipulate the people. They know I'll put a stop to this mess. They know that I'm out there talking to the people. And guess what their latest name for me is? Quote, a street thug with a high education and a suit. Mm. <laughs> and, and strange, they say, uh, he's too closely connected to the people in the streets and the ordinary person. Will he understand our special interest? Mm. Wow. We were just talking about that, Judge Brown. We were just talking about that. Oh, man. Richard, go ahead. No, you know, well, first, um, you know, I'm looking at the, the, you know, just quickly looking at the, the poll number. And even as you said, as they block you, you're, you're 
second up, if I'm reading this right, in the polls with all of that opposition uh, uh, campaigning going on against you. But the thing that struck me, um, Judge Brown, is two things. You mentioned the distribution, the, the that Memphis could be a distribution um, outlet, a communication outlet. These are, you know, industries that are, as you say, moving to the south and hydroelectric energy. Um, those are powerful things, and that the motive, the and and I think um, we we are one of the guests earlier was saying that he's seen all these. Um, um, plants, car plants, with you know moving to the south. Um, what what is the op- is it just a class challenge that they don't see that that kind of development brings benefit to all, or is it as you say just they don't care they're willing to lose out on growth? Well, uh, what what they're doing, see, is underhanded schemes like. Okay, there's a Mason, Tennessee. Mason, Tennessee has 5,200 people in it. Ford wants to get advantage of a contract that Mason, Tennessee has with the Memphis Utility Company. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's important is because the local utility company has been forbidden by ballot initiative from taking on any new contracts after 1997. Memphis has a contract with Mason, but Ford's going to have 27,500 employees and probably will have to build a town outside of Memphis with a quarter of a million people in it. So that's a lot of opportunities for people to make a lot of money if they're into construction and construction material supply. And they're trying to run Mason out of existence so that the contract would be absorbed by an exterior county and it can be assigned to Ford. Otherwise, uh, Ford will be out of a lot of money, which they can afford, but we would be stuck with a multi-billion dollar bill repairing our decrepit and decayed infrastructure dealing with sewage and provision of utilities. So some people don't care. They would rather all of the citizens around here, white, black, brown, red, yellow, pay a tab so they can get rich at our expense. Now, it's a thing. There's a lot wrong that could be corrected. Go ahead, Judge Brown. You know, Richard raised that, and you you brought in Memf- uh, Mason into the conversation. Um, as I mentioned to you when we talked last Saturday, um, I had Tom Burrell. Tom Burrell's been on at least two or three times on the program. He was on about a little over a month ago and talked about the series of meetings that he's having uh, down in Memphis area, uh, Covington, uh, Nutbush. Several of the black towns uh, that that border Mason, and he's had one in Mason, trying to organize the uh, black landowners to uh, come together and form an LLC, because the Blue Oval City. Now, when we first start talking to him, they didn't have a city designation; they were trying to get it, but now they do. Just like you stated, it's called Blue Oval City. 
the difference is when they uh, built that Detroit plant in the early 1900s, I think that was, uh, according to Mr. Burrell, uh, 2,000 acres. This plant that they're talking about building right outside of Mason is 4,100 acres, double the size of Detroit. And the huge difference is that it's many black landowners all around there that can benefit from this if they organize. You, 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 we, you know, we talk about Tulsa and, and uh, Black Wall Street, those areas all around. And you talked about you just talked about the connection with Memphis. Those areas all around black folks can really benefit with businesses, with uh, with uh, 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 things dealing with supplying of Ford, uh, with warehousing and things of that nature, parts. They can really benefit from this if they organize and we can see that they forced uh, Mr. Burrell out because he was trying to run for mayor of Mason, but they claim he didn't have. Well, Go ahead. Let me say this. Go ahead. He's the guy that's into farming, right? Yes. He's a former client of mine. We had quite a few adventures up there in Tennessee um, where he got opposition. It even got to the point where guns were drawn on some of us, and we drew down on the opposition. Sheriff had to come to stop everything from erupting, but it is nothing new. See, that, that's, that's where this thing is going wrong. There's a great opportunity for the people who live up there, but some of the locals are trying to cut them out. Mason sued the state comptroller um, for threatening to take their city charter or the town charter. They, he couldn't because the town charter comes from the state legislative body, not the comptroller's office, as is often the case. So they sued for damages and other relief. And we had one of my opponents go up there and completely in an unethical fashion interject himself as an NAACP president and wound up dismissing their lawsuit and agreeing on their behalf to pay some monies that they should have been reimbursed for because the monies were stolen from them so their taxes would be raised. So the scam is... Perhaps they won't be able to handle the tax increase, and uh, that would be grounds to snatch the charter so Ford and others can get advantage of the sewage connection. Mm -hmm. And so land could be acquired cheaply at rural prices and scam the residents out of the benefits. (laughs) The mayor of Tipton County, nearby allegedly bought 550 acres where essentially the center of Blue Oval will be located. So that's the kind of thing. It is alleged that the governor of the state has a controlling interest in a corporation that will be making the battery parts for Ford. So you have to deal with these other realities besides the straight up and down business. Now I passed the mic on that. <laughs> hey, Ellie, if I can, I'm Go going ahead. to clarify um, on Judge Brown in Memphis, 
And I'm, I'm looking, we were just talking about the NAACP and their convention and Kamala Harris going to the colleges on this um, fight, fight for our freedom tour. But um, when you mentioned the Cantillion, is the black middle income, black middle class in Memphis, are they um, in favor or is it a contingent in favor of what the vision that, that you see, the economic vision and that's going on that they could be a part of? Should, could, could, it, could the discussion be placed um, looking at it from that lens? Is the black middle class of any value in Mason and in your election at this point? Black middle class has been cut out of this. There are some that would nominally be in the black middle class, but they're trying to get out of it. And they have very affluent incomes, and they don't live where a whole lot of other people do or under the same circumstances, and nobody but them is getting a piece of the action. You've got a very bad dichotomy in Memphis in that it has one of the highest per capita incomes on one side of the town in the whole of the United States, and the other has one of the lowest. So you've got horrible conditions that people live under in one part of town and some pretty affluent conditions in the other. But the thing of it is, is everybody has cars, so it's not restricted to one part of town. And then one of the previous mayors who is running again, he's in his middle ages, Dr. Harrington, he did some things, but he made one bad mistake. He got a hold of some federal funds that allowed the destruction of public housing to be replaced by low-income housing. It had an initial positive effect, but what's happened is it's, light to the suburbs by both white and black, and it's kind of weird in terms of the theory was is we can cut down on crime by cutting down the concentration of people with certain lifestyles and mingling them with everybody else. But, of course, that didn't make the sensibilities of middle-class black folk who said, no, I'm not going to deal with that. So you've got this thing, a schism here, and nobody trusts anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you mention about um, the crime, and because, again, you know, and I'll pass it back to you, Elliot, but um, the question that comes to my mind is, as they characterize you, I think you said um, the thuggish uh, candidate or, you know, um, do, is, does... I'm, I'm trying to get to the question of um, do people who have criminal convictions, are they allowed to vote in Memphis? There is, there is a way that they can get their voting rights restored. It's an application to criminal court. They fill out the forms. The forms are signed by their probation or parole officers certifying that they have completed probation or parole. And on payment of a nominal fee, they will have their voting rights restored. Now, that is available. There have been some abuses, but it is an available process. The problem that we have is that 
interestingly enough, the people that have been exploiting the situation are trying to generate racial tension in the area that is not necessary to anybody's agenda other than being a distraction. Mm. We have people who, for example, there was an unfortunate incident with Tyree Nichols. You heard me talk about the background circumstances to that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I hear this over and over and over and over and over again. But the fact of the matter is there are more than 700 other families who have lost loved ones in a two, two and a half year period of time. And nobody's saying anything about them. And Tyree Nichols was not just white supremacy, white police confronting a black citizen, it was all black cops, and it was a personal matter between some of the police and the deceased, as the allegations suggest. Uh, that does no one any good to try and ramp that up into a racist thing or a racial thing for political purposes and bring in Kamala Harris, Al Sharpton, and Ben Trump. It's just not appropriate because that obscures the reality. We have a sheriff who's trying to campaign on his law and order background, even though I've been in the business longer than he has. I remember when he first got hired. Um, But his problem is one he doesn't want to deal with since he's been elected sheriff and he made it through one four-year term and then got elected to a second. He's one year into that. He has a problem. 52 people who have not been convicted of anything, who were simply awaiting trial in his custody, have died in his custody. Mm. And they weren't convicted, wasn't out on the streets. This just happened in the same building where the courts are located, his office is located, and the police department's located. But he neglected his responsibilities to provide for their safety. The other thing is, is quite frankly, I find it appalling that people are talking about they don't know but when they become mayor, they'll appoint a crimes or who knows, or they'll have a committee to study. And basically you have the clueless doing nothing but eating up money and leaving a lot of petty cash around to steal. And that's just not appropriate. We have a situation where Uh, If you listen to the opponents, they want to govern by committee rather than by somebody being a strong boss. So what they are accusing me of is I would be a strong boss and I might not be as sensitive to everybody's desires as some might be. Well, you know, I listen to anyone. You saw how I did. 15 years of that show when I was in your bedrooms, bathrooms, kitchens, you know, dens and living rooms. You saw me five days a week. 
for 15 years. Now, I intend to bring that same thing to bear when I get on, get in the mayor's office. But they don't really want that because they don't want fairness and impartiality. They don't want realism. They want myth to confuse the people. And quite frankly, what I'm running into is until I realized, Judge, you were running, I wasn't even going to bother the vote because it wouldn't make a difference. It's just going to be a clown show again. And we'll get ripped off again. And our local utility company, well, you know, there's a problem with it. You can't take your dog out. He might pee on the sidewalk and the whole system will break down. Just this year, it's been down one period for some people, several days, no water. For another period, no one could drink the water in a certain part of the town because it had gotten contaminated. Let's see, my electricity was out for 23 hours on one occasion, 14 on another, 8 on two occasions, and 5 or 6 on another. Everything breaks down. These clowns sold off all of the equipment necessary to deal with harsh weather conditions, and it still snows a few times during the year, but Memphis has ice on the ground and people die and there's a lot of property damage because we don't have any sand or salt in the uh, bins that are now corroded to put out on the ground and we don't have any road clearing equipment because somebody's bright idea was to sell it. We have another situation that's real cute. We don't have the grass cut, trash is all over the place because people are wrongfully appropriating the money and resources and decided to make something by selling the equipment. Uh, it's, it's just amazing how somebody can say, I'm going to run this and I'm responsible. Now, I'm responsible doesn't mean me. Most of my front-running opponents were holding office and have held office while all of this rot occurred. So they need to shoulder the blame, and somebody needs to point out if they refuse to admit it. These guys are why this is a mess. Mm. They've been mismanaging the city for several decades. Judge, <clears throat> Judge Brown, let me ask you a question, <clears throat> because... When we look at cities around this nation, and the city that myself and brother Richard lives in is, is no exception, that uh, Philadelphia is the fifth largest city in the country, fifth or sixth, I think it kind of fluctuates between the fifth and sixth, uh, that's predominantly black, that has predominantly black elected officials until this last mayor we had, uh, uh, which, is, which is Caucasian. Before that, it was the last four mayors were black mayors and that had uh, been elected multiple terms. Uh, the city council, the police department, police chief, fire chief, everybody is black. We were just in Jackson for the uh, Building Power Summit of uh, black, black city planners. A lot of these cities where these issues are happening and especially gentrification, it's black people there. Uh, in your estimation, being that you running for political office and kind of seeing these people from a different perspective than we, me and Richard, have seen them. What is the problem in your, and, and let me use another example before They're I ask crooks. You. Go, go ahead. They're crooks. 
They're sellouts. They're crooks. They make good house Negroes in third floor bedwinches. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Not all of them, but too many of them. Memphis. Memphis, what? We got a problem with the police? Well, guess what? Almost 70% of the police department is black. 80% of the command authority is black. The chief is a black female. The sheriff is a black male. Same stats for the uh, sheriff's department. 60% of the criminal court judges are black and female. 70% of the jury pool is black. Uh, 56, 7% of the police grew up in Memphis, you see. So this is the largest predominantly black city in the United States. So Mm. what are we talking about here when we start complaining about what's going wrong? It's us. And see, this is a horribly corrupt place. Horribly. Like, this one, everybody involved essentially is dead. But back in the 80s, they had Mud Island housing development. It was real upscale. And under the state regulations, what happens is that the developer is supposed to dedicate some of the land of his development to widening roads or putting roads over them and then pay for the roads. This guy didn't want to do it. So he came up with a novel way of bribing the city council. What he did was there was a right angle turn uh, intersection after the street came over the bridge that went to the development. And there was a stop sign. He bought the stop sign for $13,600. Why would anybody want to buy a stop sign? Well, three months later, he sold the stop sign back to the city for $6.8 million, and he used that to bribe the city council. Now, that's the way things work in Memphis. It's ingenious, but they've had a lot of practice because unlike every other location in the South, Memphis, Memphis and its blacks, its colored, its Negroes, its blacks, its Afro-Americans, blacks, African-Americans, black again, they never got deprived of the right to vote because they had a strong man here known as Boss Crump. And he ran Tennessee with an iron hand, and the way he did it is he had the black block vote, which he never allowed to be snatched away by allowing black people to lose the vote. And he had a large white minority. He never had the majority of white people. But he had this supermajority and controlled everything. You couldn't be a new preacher without his permission. Uh, You couldn't be a scoutmaster without his permission. So this is the kind of thing that was going on in Memphis, and he set up a system of power brokers or black vote brokers more than 100 years ago, 120 years ago. And that's still the case here in Memphis is the fallout from this fossil that ought to be in the early modern Smithsonian institutions wing. Um, Well, the early modern history wing of the Smithsonian. And it's very bad because nobody appreciates what happens when the water runs dry. And they are accustomed to people 
getting large sums of money assigned to them if they are favored and will go along with the program. And they try to deliver the black bloc vote. One of the main problems is these sample ballots. People don't know who's running for what. Well, take an example. The guy's name is Joe McCarty. Uh, he's dead now. He was judge of Division 8 criminal court, and he always got the black bloc vote, invariably. He would be on these black ballots, and he would get the bloc vote. Well, guess what his history was? He had been formerly the Grand Dragon for the Klan and chairman of the White Citizens Council, but he got the black bloc vote because nobody knew any better. And the people that took the money and put him on the ballot... There is that. Our current mayor, his name is Jim Strickland. When he ran for city council the first time, he was running against a black man. Do you know what he did? He had the people that put the ballots out take his picture as a white man and put it over the black man's name and took the black man's picture and put it over his name. So people thought they were voting for a black man when they were voting for a white guy that the white folk don't even like. Their derisive nickname for him is the Pillsbury Doughboy. Mm. Now, see, that's how politics works around here, except when you get the occasional person who just fires up the public and they get excited about it. So... I tend to do that. The last time I got elected was to an eight-year judgeship, and my opponent, well, his mom owned the Commercial Appeal, the only daily newspaper, and they ran ads, uh, yeah, what is it, editorials for eight days straight saying, turn me out. But I set a record. Guess what? I'm the only person since 1863 to win every single precinct in a countywide contested election. Mm. So you see, things like that can happen. And that's not because I had to show I wasn't a TV judge then. It's just off a of service to the community. Okay. I took a lot of pro bono cases. I got the youngest person in the world on death row, off death row after getting a stay of execution just 23 minutes before they were going to execute the kid. He was 15 years old and two weeks at that time. And this was supposedly for something he did when he was 13, and I got an acquittal. Uh, well, the verdict of guilty was set aside by the Arkansas Supreme Court unanimously. So these people don't have these kind of credentials, but yet because they promise stuff to people, um, they get the support and the local media suppresses the one candidate that might bring something to the fore. Now, there are a couple of other people, but they're just not known. I'm not going to down everybody, but I think the primary opponents, wow, you're on the Board of Education and you're responsible for the deterioration of the educational system to just above zero around here. Uh, you are holding a prominent position in state legislature, but you have gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars in just a few years from some of the worst people to get money from, you are running
spring claiming you're trying to help out the black community, but you got $25,000 from a pipeline and association that's trying to lay a poisonous petroleum pipe through the black areas. Uh, you claim you were an NAACP president, but you've sold out Mason, Tennessee, and you got a deal in place for hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that you will be able to rake in for yourself and your friends by complicity in some criminal wrongdoing. There's another scandal we've got here where the clerk innocently was accused of mismanagement, the county clerk, and not being able to deliver license plates to those who were getting new registrations. But it turns out thousands of these plates were hijacked and they're turning up in interstate commerce on stolen vehicles. And there's a matter of $28 million that seems to have been taken by another black high official who interjected himself. And then we've got a thing where a prominent member of a prominent political family supposedly got raided by the FBI for state ethical violations. But the FBI does not investigate state crimes. So that's all a dodge. So we have to look at this whole thing for what it is. It's a real live mess. And many, many, many times over the past few decades, black elected officials and a few white ones have gone to jail because they were crooked. Now, that's got to stop. It just has to stop. It's inexcusable because this ought to be a mecca for black people. <laughs> and instead of it becoming a mecca, it just becomes a... Uh, the store with little security that's ideal to shoplift from. And that's what we have. City management by shoplifters who steal from the city. Mm. City management by shoplifters. Wow. Let's go to a, a few of these calls. They call it 662. 662, I know it's you. You already know it's me? That's, that, that's right. Y'all already know it's Brother Zamora. Yes, sir. And I'm glad, I'm so glad that y'all immediately, immediately got uh, JJB on the line. <clears throat> because it comes down to this for me, because I'm closer to Memphis than I am to Jackson. Even though Mississippi is my home with Jackson, but I'm closer to Memphis. Memphis got two choices. They can either elect Joe Brown and correct a lot of wrongs, or either... Joe Brown got me completely fooled, and I'm not easily fooled. So that's the option. Mrs. had no other option but Joe, Joe, Judge Joe Brown. So I'm appreciative, and I'm not going to take up a lot of time because I know some people that's trying to call in uh, that I want to listen to. I'm enjoying the show, and that's about it. That's about all I want to say. I'm going to sit back and listen, man. I appreciate you all. Brother, Brother Patrick. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm not fooling you. I've got a track record in Memphis that goes back 50 years. I got to Memphis about a few weeks more than 50 years ago, and I was a grown man then. I, for example, forget all of the people I represented pro bono just because their cause was just. The fact that I was training other lawyers on how to try first-degree murder cases, all of the murder cases I had tried, 
forget the fact that I was uh, on a criminal bench and I reduced the felony repeat rate from the statewide average of 80% down to just 18% in my courtroom. And I was the only judge in America that not only was conducting counseling classes for those that were fit for some relief from absolute service and complete sentences to patrolling the neighborhoods involved. So I was Uncle Joe or Granddad Joe or whatever, and, hey, you come here. I, well, didn't I tell you to be in by 10? It's 1130. What are you doing out? Oh, oh, you see me tomorrow. And I get people now, 25 and 30 years later, walk up to me, Judge, I want to thank you for straightening me out. Now I'm grandfather. I've been working and married, you know, family man. I'm so happy you got a hold of me. Or you remember me, Judge? No, I don't recognize you. Well, you gave me some time. Did I give you enough? Oh, yeah, but see, it was that thing about manhood. You see, that's the thing. You put manhood in people. Oh, womanhood. And when somebody looks in the mirror, they say, hey, man, did you act like you were supposed to yesterday? You don't do better today. And you feel intense shame and guilt if you don't act that way. And now you got fools running around. Oh, my God, they shame someone. Oh, one should never feel guilt. Yes, you should. (laughs) Control mechanism. I was in a meeting I got invited to. It was just a discussion session, I thought, at the public library in Memphis. And it was some little vanilla and cinnamon cupcakes. And they were in there, 17 through 23, 24 years old. And they were trying to tell folk that you black people don't really understand what's going on with you. It's this horrible poverty we put on your heads. It causes you to act so violently and some sisters said hey i grew up poor but we didn't get raised like that well you just don't understand your own situation you lack the comprehension woman said what do you mean i lack the comprehension and i said excuse me we need to put manhood back in the hood masculinity has been taken out Oh, my God, that horrible word, masculinity. (laughs) We are against masculinity. We have to smash it down. There can be none of this. That's what causes all the violence is this masculine nonsense. Do you know what I do? How old are you? I'm 19, and I have my beliefs. So most of the black folk walked out, and I just gathered them before they left the library. I said, hey, this public library, let's have our own meeting. So they discussed this. I said, see, that's part of the problem is this. This is what's running the city. Hmm. Some of the people, oh, that explains it. He's, He's one of the sponsors of this kind of nonsense, isn't he? Yeah. I said, yeah, now you see why they've got such support. You see, the money comes in, and somebody is talking this, and there's another one up in Nashville. They got the first, same first name. They've had millions of dollars raised in just a few months because they pushed that poisonous agenda of emasculation of the black community. <laughs> if you take masculinity out of the hood or hallway, you have hell because you lose the control mechanism that causes the most violent, efficient predator the planet has ever seen to not kill himself inappropriately. And that's one of the reasons we've got 
so much violence in the hood. There are no daddies around, no uncles, no big brothers, no grandfathers, no fathers, no stepfathers. And we have to put it back in there, and there are ways, and that's what I did over a 10-year period to reduce recidivism from 80% down to just 18 mm. Now, some people don't like that, but they don't need to be in charge. <laughs> Brother Patrick? Yes, sir. Thanks for your contribution, man. Yes, you you just started to judge. You just started to judge up. I'm, 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 great, I'm grateful for that man right there. I'm grateful <laughs> for that man and that McCarthy that he was speaking of. If I'm not mistaken, that's the same John McCarthy that sentenced me to 1045 Mother Station Road, better known as the Pimp Farm when I was 18 years old, and uh, sent me in another direction. Uh, I learned a lot, but I, sh- I, I, I most definitely wish that I could have had the discernment of a Judge Joe Brown, who at that time uh, I knew about the alternative citizens that he was doing. And I've been spending the last week defending Judge Joe Brown present at the Black Power Summit in Jackson, Mississippi. So I'm grateful for all three of the men that's on this phone right now. Thank y'all, and thank you, Joe Brown. Thank you, sir, for <laughs> getting where you need to be. Let's go again to uh, Holly Springs. Caller? Let's put them on hold. Let's go to 215. 215. 215, are you there? I guess 215 is not there. Let's go to 646. 646. Yes, um, Judge Brown, quick question for you. Um, Do you think that um, Kamala Harris has what it takes to be POTUS of the United States of America? No. Thank you. Absolutely not. See, her staff has a problem. They'll stay up long hours trying to brief her. She won't read it because she's lazy. She always has been. Uh, she formally just raised her hemline for effect, but that doesn't work on the level she is now. And in Europe, they call her word salad, Kamala, because she doesn't have anything coherent to say. She just throws a lot of words there, tops them up and tosses them around, and that's supposed to satisfy something. You're talking to an international audience, and diplomats and countries are hanging on every nuance, sentence, comma, inference from what you're saying, and you just throw something out there irresponsibly that's not even coherent, and you're grinning like a hyena, and I don't like the fact that she's faking it. Now, years, years ago, I met her father in Jamaica, sitting at the table with the governor general of the island and the prime minister and my ex-wife, wife at the time, was sitting there. She asked him what he was. He said he was Caucasian. He said he was a Hindu Brahmin caste, uh, what did he put it, Indo-Aryan. And he had Caucasian Irish mixed in him. 
He said, sometimes people confuse my grandmother, who was a Hindu house servant, with being black, but she was not. Kamala Harris claims that person, her great-grandmother, to be black. But her daddy's sitting up there saying the woman wasn't. So what is it? And by the way, I got a little funny thing. If you are white mixed with black, do they call you white or do they call you black? <laughs> I think if we you know are, the answer to that. If you are Asian and you got some black in you, do they call you Asian? No, they call you black. So what about Asian calling her Asian, which is what you are if you're from India. India. Hindu Brahmin caste people are the top of their heap. Hindus are fine people. But she's not black. She is Hindu. And if you look at Hindus, they tend to be swarthy to dark skin, but with coarse, long hair and dark eyes. And their technical name is Aryan. Mm. And Hitler was right. The Aryans had something to do with Germany, but they weren't blonde-haired, blue-eyed. That's a lie told long and loudly. They look like Kamala Harris or darker. If well, you look well, at Indians, they look just like her. Well, is it? Well, number one, you know she has a tail, right? And I and, and you mentioned it when you said that you know when she doesn't know something, she becomes mad and starts to laugh and giggle. I I, I mean that's her tell that she doesn't know what's going on. But also, let me ask you this. Since you made that analysis about her race, doesn't that same thing apply to Nikki Haley on the on the Republican side? I don't know. I haven't gotten into her that deeply. I don't have a long history of like of the Republican Party because of what they became, but I got a very distasteful uh, residue, you know, that I can smell in my nostrils when somebody keeps trying to down masculinity. I don't like anybody trying to down what I am. I'm a man. You're a man. You know, we're half of the human race. We're a very vital part of the human race. Uh, we protect womanhood and childhood and promote manhood. We're the ones that get up out of the seat and the boat when the Titanic goes down and give our seats up to women and children. That takes a hell of a lot of doing, but they're trying to get us away from that. And that okay, is not a lastly, good thing. Okay, now lastly, let me let me ask you this. Based on your history as a judge and in the court system, as a regular judge and a TV judge. How do you see this thing playing out with Fredo Trump, a.k.a. Donald Trump? How, how is this going to play out? Because, you know, a lot of people are going to, at some point in time, really push this 14th Amendment thing if he's convicted in time. Uh, how, Let me how do say you this. see it played out? Let me see this. Last year, late last year, I was invited to New Jersey. Fox was doing a moot court thing on whether or not there was probable cause to believe that Hunter Biden had committed a crime to wit, 
uh, Foreign Agents Registration Act violation. And I actually got a chance to look at the three downloaded laptops. We had the technician who serviced them, and he had all of the paperwork from Hunter Biden that gave him access, and he downloaded the stuff. So we went all through it. It is very incriminating. As somebody who's been involved in criminal justice for a half century, I'd say, hey, uh, there's a lot of probable cause to indict not just Hunter Biden, but his daddy and some other people, too. Those uh, documents, classified documents that were in the box behind the vet, they're referred to in those laptops. And uh, the discussion is, is did they get a chance to look in the box? I yeah, won't go I'm any further. about Donald Trump, Judge Brown, I, I don't, I, as far as I'm concerned, the issue in regards to the critical stage that we are at in this country with basically us losing our as one would say, our democracy and all the other things at play is threatened by Donald Trump, not by Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is of really, honestly, no value. He He's never going to be in a position to destroy this so-called country, which basically um, Donald Trump is the one who has that ability to absolutely destroy the country. Now, me and you ain't going to be here too much longer. But the reality is we have family members who are going to be here. So that's, that's why I'm asking you about Donald Trump. The hell with Hunter Biden and his daddy. Well, no, I'm it's not fun. worried about Donald Trump. Donald Trump's okay. motivation is to get things restored back to equilibrium. That's not the problem. Let me give you an example. Do you know who Miranda is? I have a very bad guy. He was not a good person. But if we were more concerned about how bad he was, we would never have the articulation of you have a right to remain silent. Anything you say can and may be used in evidence against you. You have a right to have an attorney, et cetera, et cetera. Those are Miranda rights. And when I had a question in front of me about suppressing a statement or evidence, oftentimes the defendant was not a good guy. But you can't let that interject itself in terms of the application of rights because if you make a determination on who gets rights based on an opinion as to his or her character, you go way wrong because justice is blind. Now, the problem we have right now is Hunter Biden is a far greater danger because what we're doing is deviating from the ordinary standards of justice in ignoring him or treating him lightly. And with Trump, we're going overboard on him because we, some of us, don't like him. Now, let's take, okay, let's go to what Bragg did in New York, they indicted him for essentially bribing Stormy Daniels not to embarrass him, right? Yes or no, you think that. That's what they claim, all right? 
What's wrong with that? Law school, you get taught to flip the script, but apparently Bragg never did. So if somebody had to bribe somebody not to blackmail them, excuse me, not to embarrass them, that's called blackmail. It's a felony. So you indict somebody who is the victim of a felony. Okay, you indict a corporate entity for failing to accurately report the terms of the payout to Stormy Daniels. Well, there was a gag provision to the settlement. And if you detailed what the settlement was about in these public filings, then you violated the gag order. So you indicted somebody for following the law. All right? Go down to Florida and you get this. I'm not talking about whether I like him or not. I'm talking about being a criminal court judge and a defense lawyer for a long time. Uh, Down in Florida. You got this thing on Wow We Whoopee. He had classified documents, but the case is United States Department of the Navy versus Egan. E A E excuse me. E G A N nineteen eighty eight. If you take all of the concurring opinions, they say that the president has an absolute right to classify or declassify documents in any fashion that he chooses. You see, he's commander-in-chief under the military, under the Constitution, and he is chief diplomat. It may come to him to declare to the French ambassador that there are some things the CIA came up with that the French government needs to be aware of. He may decide to overrule his chiefs of staff and say this document should be classified and you want to declassify it or saying, hey, this is just something that the public needs to know. I'm going to declassify it because you got no business spying on U.S. citizens inside the United States. Now, they also say in that decision he can do it by any means he chooses. He can partially declassify them, totally declassify them. The documents by law were prepared for him to read and to assist him in being president. And there is a strong possibility that the particular documents contained incriminating evidence against another administration. So you want to destroy the evidence by turning it over to them? No way. But you see, the problem with the fundamental fairness aspect of law is that you don't do anything against Joe Biden for having the documents uh, in the box behind the vet that he supposedly accidentally took. Yet in the laptops, there is clear discussion about the uh, foreign agents being directed to look in the various boxes or the box so they could find out what was in them. And we don't know yet. So you got all kinds of things. So the question becomes, uh, let's break it down to right now. We're sending billions of dollars to the Ukraine. Are we over there because it's a righteous thing or because the president is trying to bribe his way out of a multi-count organized crime indictment. Why is that important? Late October or early November before the election, 2020, the Ukraine Supreme Court unsealed 
a multi-page, multi-count, organized crime indictment naming Joe Biden and Hunter Biden for soliciting treason, perjury, bribery, extortion, and a number of other things. Why is that important? Well, Article 6 of the Constitution says part of the supreme law of the land are treaties that have been ratified by the Senate. There's a 1999 treaty negotiated by Bill Clinton, president at the time, and ratified by the U.S. Senate that says essentially the Ukraine and the United States enter into a treaty where anyone wanted by legal process in the other nation will be detained, excuse me, apprehended, detained, and extradited by the other party to the treaty. So Ukraine has uh, several, well, it's a long, long indictment against Hunter and Joe Biden and other people. So obligation under the supreme law of the land is to detain him and extradite him to Ukraine. But they're not going to do it since he's the president, commander in chief, not right now. Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution says that the president and vice president, if impeached and convicted for bribery, treason, or other crimes in office, shall be removed, and under the 12th Amendment, they can't serve again. Problem is, is that treason is defined, the only crime defined in the Constitution, And even though there is some possibility you might get a treason charge that would stick against certain people, you certainly have bribery uh, that rears its head, and you have this problem with the Article 6, which says ratified treaties become part of the supreme law of the land on the level with the Constitution, its amendment excuse me, it's amendments and laws that Congress passes to carry out the Constitution. So we got a real big problem here. And the Democratic Party stupidly went after Trump after he was no longer president, and they set the precedent of going after someone for impeachment purposes uh, after he no longer held an office during which the offenses allegedly occurred. So you've got a real live mess with American law right here. You've got a problem with the First Amendment down in Georgia. And one of the counts on the 92 pages of the indictment that I downloaded is interesting. Several counts allege that the offense was urging followers to look at or read Newsmax. Now, I look at it, and I recommend that people read or look at some of the stuff on Newsmax. So I guess if I did that in Georgia, I'd be committing a felony. But Newsmax actually has higher ratings than CNN does and rivaling Foxes now. So what time is that? That's a little oppressive. Also, there's 200-some years worth of history about the rule when somebody is vigorous in their First Amendment advocacy and what happens if somebody independently 
decides to get unruly in a mob or a crowd. And uh, if you get away from evil Trump and you just apply the law, it's like, what are these guys doing? Now, all I'm saying is, is forget who Trump is. Just substitute any John Doe in there and see if you've got a problem with the law being applied in an even-handed fashion. Now, I'm not trying to defend Trump. I'm just saying uh, I know law does not work when you start getting into its applicability being dependent upon who's on trial or who's accused. Mm. We as black people have suffered the slings and arrows of that for a long, long time. And we ought to discourage that being applied to anybody because it's too easily thrown right back on us. Now, I will rest the dissertation and the law lecture with that. <laughs> Thank you very much, and have a good evening, and best of luck with your mayor's race. Right. Elliot, if I can, and Joe Brown, uh, Judge Joe Brown, I hope I, I'm not um, asking a question that isn't relevant. But um, this, I'm, I'm playing this because of, of the conference and, and where I'm at right now. Um, black people as a people group, do we have first-class citizenship in America? Yes, if you exercise it. Okay. But you see, it's like, I'll give you another example. Let's take basketball. And when you think of basketball, do you think a white player or a black player? Black player. Okay. Basketball, the NBA used to be one of the most racist institutions in the entirety of America. The first black man to play basketball was Don Barksdale. He used to run track and play football for UCLA, but he never played basketball until the Lakers hired him. But you see, it's the same rule book, well, with some minor changes that apply to everybody. The same sport, it's just we have gotten in a position where we know how to play basketball as well or better than anybody else. Now, what we have is a situation where there is an old truism, and it doesn't make any difference whether you're talking about white folk or black folk, when it comes to the American system, the quote is, quote, you get the representation you deserve. Mm. And if the representation is the pitch, that's because the people are that way at the time. They're not doing their homework. They're not paying attention to the critical issues, and they're dealing with emotive matters that have nothing to do with the realities. So we pay more attention to basketball than we do to our politics. Man, there ain't no time for that, man. What's on with the game, man? Why you talking, man? The game's on, man. <laughs> see, I heard somebody say it gives them a headache. So they read yeah. relationship. And see, but basketball doesn't have a damn thing to do with whether you have to pay child support or how much alimony or who gets the house or whether you get bonds set for you, or whether somebody delivers a cogent argument to the jury in your behalf and you walk or you go to jail. And by the way, let's talk about going to jail. That is a bad problem, but jail is no longer there to control crime. It's there to control surplus labor. Hmm. 
see, there are not enough jobs to go around now, and we have relied on private enterprise to provide all of the solutions, but they're about profitability. They're not about seeing that everybody that needs to work gets a chance to work. And technology and computerization have wiped out a lot of jobs, and there are no replacements. And labor is a commodity. It's like wheat or corn. And when you've got a glut in a, uh, a commodity market, what you do is three things. You store the surplus, subsidize the would-be producer, cut back production. We put the surplus here in a jail cell instead of a grain silo. Cutting back the production is when we get stuck on stupid and we ideate on the foolish things uh, where we don't get vocational skills, we don't get a work ethic, we clown, carry on, uh, get knocked up too early, too often, develop inappropriate outlooks on the world and make where we live chaos. And when the felony comes around, you are very difficult to employ thereafter. And, yeah, they put you to work in a prison, but it's not to use your labor. It's so you aren't idle because what's the old saying? Idle minds mischief make. So they want you occupied so you don't create too much mischief while you're locked up. And then the subsidy is a welfare check that's not used as a stopgap situation for an emergency or an unfortunate situation is used generationally where nobody has had a job and generation after generation, that check is supposed to be helping out for children who just happen to be here, the children they had, so the check is here. And that resulted in checks getting cut off if there was somebody being a daddy all kinds of things that have gone wrong and poisonously wrong. Now, that said, we need to pay attention to what's going on, and if we did, it would work differently. People that look like us just get off the boat from Africa or the plane, and within a generation, they're making it well. They're making it good. What's wrong with us? We've been here all these years. The secrets are there, but we don't talk about them. When we sit around the table, do we talk about business? We might talk about drug dealing, and that's kind of an entrepreneurial thing, but it's poisonous to a lot of people, including our community. We're not talking about those things that you hear other families talk about. See, we we have ideation. We're stuck on appearances because we're taught that. That becomes part of our culture, what you look like, what your appearance is about, rather than what you are about. And by the way, more than 50 years ago, when I worked at a D.C. think tank as an intern, I had to spend several long weeks late at night reading microfilm copies of what they called the slave pamphlets. One of the most disturbing things that I remember well was this admonition to slave owners to make the elements of slavery part of the culture of the black man. So he teaches himself to be a slave. Mm. And we have a whole lot of things in there that dictate to us not being involved in politics not doing this, not doing that, because it's supposed to be right, but actually it's bad for us. 
all kinds of insidious things, like one of the things that they did over and over again over this 150-year period that these pamphlets covered. It was under no circumstances, no matter how much you like your houseboy slave or your butler or your gun carrier or your driver for your carriage, never interface with him when it comes to dealing with your slaves. Always deal through a senior black woman, never a senior black man. And what do you see right now? Black men are trying to be cut out of the equation unless they, you know, get a little marginal. And that's what we have. We put that in our culture. So we have to think about these things and open our eyes. Why is it that other people come here, flock to be here as land of opportunity, and we look at it is white supremacist oppression. Yes, there's white supremacy. You damn straight there is. There is white evil, but not all white folk are evil. There is misguided white mischief, the little cupcakes that know better than we do what's wrong with us. I just got through talking about that a few minutes ago. But a lot of what we do is what we do to ourselves just because of the attitude we have about things, such as appearances are more important than reality. Uh, this guy looks like he's got flash, and this guy's got millions of dollars in at his beck and call in a bank account, but because he doesn't look flash, he gets ignored, and meanwhile, the guy that's just trying to Hustler, who's as broke as anybody can be, but he's got a suit or two or a ride that looks pimped out, and everybody thinks he's got something. So you listen to the uh, hustler rather than the man that knows how to make it. See, we do that kind of stuff. We ideate on basketball, but we forget that the Magic Johnsons and the Michael Jordans went through college and played ball not to just be a ball star, but so they could get a stake in business. I go out and I try to recruit young people for a pilot's program where when you're in the early 20s, you'll be making a guaranteed six figures a year. And they pay for your flight training, every dime that is necessary. You get free room and board, expense, uh, daily expense uh, allotment. And when you come out, you are qualified as a multi-engine aircraft pilot with instrument qualifications that the military will accept in lieu of flight school. And you can be hired as a second chair pilot by all of the major airlines. Man, I don't want that, man. I don't play some ball, man. I don't be no pilot, man. All you got to do is have, you know good character and the C average in high school be 18 to 21 and your vision correctable to just 2040 and not be ready to drop dead of a heart attack. You aren't in No, man, I ain't got no time for that. See, what do we do? We've got to start thinking critically. One of the problems is that for the last 50 years, we have had no Malcolm X's, no H-Rap Browns who have talked to the people. That's been suppressed. 
we've got folk who are celebrities, but for the most part, the celebrity status came from make-believe or distraction. They play a gangster, but why are we ideating on gangsters? They play the person who is in charge, but are they really capable of that? And is it something somebody dreamed up that they just happen to have a talent for portraying as though it's real? Oh, they're great on the basketball court, but are they somebody like Kwame Brown or who may have an inspirational, insightful message for somebody that they need to pay attention to to get their stuff together? No, we don't pay attention. Yeah. What is it we're doing to ourselves? So we need to focus on realities. The world is a dangerous place. It's filled with adversity. We, as men, have to take pride in conquering adversity. And real adversity is not on a basketball court or a football field because there are no consequences to that other than monetary ones. But there are things in the real world that will kill you and eat you. Mm. And I know that because I've been face-to-face with some of them. So let me tell you, there are threats out there that, we men have subdued to the point where the elephants are dying and you need to send $19 a month to the World Wildlife Association. The tiger used to rule the jungle. Now we do. And they're in danger. Well, yeah, there's that. So what is it? Poor Earl, he's been mistreated along with Jamal. And we need to send $19 a month to save a Negro. You know, we don't get it sometimes. But anyway, I'm pontificating. I'll pass tonight. Let me take this to the last call. 602, 602. Yes. Yes, good brothers. Greetings. And greetings to George Joe Brown. This is one of your country. One of your constituents, when you win, judge, when you win, when you become mayor, because I know you're going to win. But, judge, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Um, Now, judge, I am a firm believer that wherever black folks make up the mass majority of the population, black folks must run the economics and body politics of that community. Now, Memphis is a predominantly black community, 70% black. Yet still, we only run 2% of the local economy here in Memphis. So, if you become mayor, what will you do to change that condition, George? Okay, let me give you a plan. One of the things that you need to understand is that you need financing. Banks can have book accounts as large as they want, so long as they're backed up by a certain percentage of cash, even on deposit in the bank's own vaults or with the uh, Federal Reserve. Memphis has for years put every dime it has in First Tennessee Bank. First Tennessee Bank has been invested in financing the activities of a certain select group that does not include black people. 
we do not have a black bank. Now, First Tennessee is now First Horizon, which is not even an American bank. It's foreign. So we're putting money in a bank that could be distributed in alternative banks and credit unions that have the idea that they need to make mortgages that are on a sound basis for the middle class and black folk to start financing small businesses run by black folk and everybody else and having um, fairness displayed to self. Years ago, when I was still practicing law, and this has been more than 30 years ago, I had clients who were trying to get business loans. Well, they went to this agency, and there was somebody black in charge of this agency's loan department. And they were getting the loans, but if they needed a hundred grand, they had to take two hundred grand out and give half to this guy. Seventy-five thousand, you had to get a hundred and fifty thousand and give half to this guy. And they just weren't able to pay this back. So this kind of crookedness has got to stop. And we've got to do something else about actually being interested in small businesses and black businesses. The average black entrepreneur is getting nothing from the city. I have been reviewing contracts and looking at the paperwork, and some of them are just disgusting excuses so that the process is not fair, so that black entrepreneurs do not get anything. And then there's this problem of turning the whole thing around where we want to blame each other without dealing with the fact that the so-called leadership are a bunch of crooks. They're getting a lot of money for these things. Like, for example, the allegations against a certain king, I'd say locally prominent politician, or that he violated state ethics when it comes to elected officials. What is he supposed to have done? He's supposed to have been on the county commission, and he sponsored an act of legislation just to spend $450,000 with a corporate entity that was renovating laptops. Well, the allegation is that he took a consultant fee from the same company for $45,000 that he introduced legislation so they could sell their product for $450,000 to the taxpayers. Now, did that help out black folks? No, it did not. But you see, it deprived the opportunity for black businesses to $450,000 that would have legitimately subsidized black-owned business. See, these kind of things just go on and on and on. Uh, you try to scapegoat one of the county clerks because she's a black woman. She supposedly definitely was responsible for not delivering license plates and then you find out that certain high officials allegedly 
effectively embezzled $28 million from the account she was responsible for. You see, did that help out anybody except one person? No, it didn't. So that kind of thing is approved of. And people are saying, we need to have the chance to do it. Everybody's been doing it. Just don't do that. You see, when you have the opportunity to do right, you do right. Well, George, I didn't know that the degree, I didn't know that Memphis was so corrupt, George. I'm glad you you, you shed some light. I, I lived down here for nine years. But I didn't know there was such so much corruption going on. Thank you, George. Yeah. Thank you. Remember, do you remember Tennessee Waltz, the sting operation where they put all these folk in jail, including a lot of black elected officials for taking bribes? Well, I probably yeah, but that was a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember. Probably really. It's called Tennessee Waltz. We need a Memphis boogie to get some more of the crooks rounded up because they are absorbing our tax dollars. There was one character that held an elected official, uh, office. He was charging his constituents 250 cash to come talk to him. Mm. Then it went up more. That's not right. Wow. Mm, that's terrible, George. Well, George, I hope you get elected so you can clean house, clean house, George. Thank you so much. Thank Where you. are you from? I'm from Jamaica, but I've been living in Memphis since 2009. I like Jamaica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear you, George. <laughs> Main thing you guys need to do in Jamaica is clean up that Queen Elizabeth Highway that seems to be your main population control device with all the people that get killed on that thing. <laughs> yeah, George, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. Well, thank you, George. Thank you so much for your time. Talk, All right, sir. Talk thank to you, you later. Again. All right. Judge Brown, listen, I want to thank you for spending some time with us, man. It, it was it was good having you talk to us. And and, and what, that election is, because uh, I always think of elections being in November. You say an election down there in Memphis is October 5th? Yeah, there's no runoff, and there's 17 people in the race. Wow. Listen, you got a lot of support down there. Uh, I was talking to Brother Patrick, uh, Brother Nick uh, Bezel. It's a lot of support down there for you, uh, Judge, and I think you're going to win. Yes, sir. Let's hope so, because I'm going to make it a mecca for the whole country. Someplace we can be that's safe, sound, secure, with plenty of educational and job opportunities for the kids and grandkids place where it's safe to be. And there'll be a lot of entertainment and I intend to set up subsidies and encouragements and a whole nest of things to make it friendly to the entertainment industry. I'm going to do something about promoting education and we're going to deal with some character, even if I have to be the only one out there trying to push it. And every week we're going to have a mayor's counseling session where everybody is invited and we'll talk about such things. <laughs> and the police, I'm going to change around so they are modeled on the defense department where it's not civilian oversight but civilian control. Mm. 
Judge, glad to have you with us. Talk to you soon. All right, sir. Thanks for having me on. All right. Peace. Thanks. Ciao. Richard, yeah. <laughs> it was good conversation with the judge. He, he he gave you a clear explanation for everything he was mentioning, Richard. I mean, and it, you know, one thing about Judge Brown that came in as I was listening to him is two people in New York that he mentioned, especially when he mentioned about service to the community and all his responses um, was, especially, you know, was from his personal service to the community in relationship to culture, relationship to um, politics and relationship to law understanding, you know, and that is Charles Barron and automatics, you know, those, you know, we, 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 in interviewing Charles Barron, we hear someone who said, this is what you can do. Judge Brown, um, he mentioned it from the perspective of him being on the bench mm-hmm. and was able to do as a part of that commu- um, service to the community and the and the effects of that compared to this other stuff that's going on in in Memphis in relationship to the criminal culture or as he said the pimping the the pimping culture that is there and I don't know if we should extrapolate that Elliot. Um, that maybe his metaphor of pimping is when we're looking at black leadership. That's what's the. Ch- that's why we're not seeing what we perceive we should see. Yeah, because there's a pimping culture going on. You know, and 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 uh, and it kind of relates to you know when you was mentioning about Jared Ball, who um, uh, mm-hmm. hopefully he'll be on sometime next this month. Well, this this is October. Don, mm. No, this is still September and October right. sometime because the money that we need for certain things is there because when you have majority black, whether it's a little town or small city, it's a tax base there, Richard. You have mm. landowners there. So it is money there to do things, to develop businesses, to develop black businesses. But if the money is used to go somewhere else, to line somebody else's pocket, or to line your pocket, then the community never sees it. Mm. So when he's talking about Memphis and all these people stealing money, that's not just in Memphis. That's in all of these cities. That's in all of them. You know, I was just, because I was going to share that article, and I know you saw it, about uh, Baltimore schools. And, um, I think it was 12 schools. Wait a minute. Hold it. 13 of the schools in Baltimore, they have 30, 32 public schools. 32, wait a minute. It's, uh, 13 of the school districts, 32 public high schools, which is 1,295 students, uh, scored zero on their math exams proficiency. Now, Richard, how much you want to bet that those schools is in the black community? Mm-hmm. But they were talking about the the superintendent or the CEO, Sonia Brookins uh, Sant, uh, Santalise. She's a black woman. She's making $450,000 a year. They talked about all the money that the school district has. This year alone, 
their budget was $1.6 billion. As it, during the 2022-23 school year, the Baltimore City Public Schools has an annual budget of $1.6 billion. It's the largest ever and also scored $799 million in federal COVID grants. So you're talking about a lot of money. So why is the schools in our area so deficient? See, this, this borders on what, what uh, Judge Brown was talking about. It's money in these areas, Richard. If you're talking about a majority black city or town, black people pay taxes. You ain't dead, not, but you pay your taxes. Mm-hmm. And according to uh, uh, Brother Rochester, who wrote the black tax, black people pay more taxes than anybody in this country. Mm-hmm. You remember that, Richard? Yeah. And there's a couple mm-hmm. of articles to that effect, too. You can pull it up. The, the listening audience can Google it about black folks and taxes in this country. So if you paying the, the overwhelming majority of taxes in this country, you mean to tell me that can't translate into services in your community? You heard him talking about the trash and all that stuff uh, mm-hmm. there in Memphis, the water going out and all that type of stuff. It's either the, the people there don't pay taxes or something else is happening with the money. And that's just not just in Memphis. Look at those other cities. Look at where we're at for the convention. Look at the condition. Of, look at the condition of that historic Farris Street, Richard. Mm-hmm. Historic black district. With the, I think it was the first black movie theater. The first black organized church in Memphis was on Farris Street. An old venue where they had, I think they made it a restaurant now, J J T's. But in the past, it was a uh, it was a music venue where the children's circuit used to go through. They got mm-hmm. images on the wall of all of the people that had been there, from Sammy Davis Jr. to Lena Horne, Duke Ellington, all the way up to the Temptations and the Supremes. But after the children's circuit, a lot of those places like that in Jackson and other places in the Black Belt closed down or went into disrepair. But that's what I'm talking about. The city planners, you showed me all those city planners, black. The mayor and other key positions in the city, black. And it's looking like that. It's no reason for that, Richard, unless something else is going on. Yeah, it's, uh, but you heard what he said. I mean, I, 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 it may go against my sensibility, but I have to accept, you know, his observation. Uh, first-class citizenship comes only with obligation of acting as first-class citizens. And I, in doing that, I don't see any contradiction in operating from the perspective of self-determination. Yeah. But if you, and, for and, somebody to give you that, then you'll be waiting. And I, what he said about that, the... Um, the coding in relationship to what was in that, what is it, that the slave code was mm-hmm. the uh, pamphlets mm-hmm. that he threw and the point of incul- enculturating into the culture, the slave culture. I mean, that that's intentional to be basically um, not self-governing not self-determining, you know, because that's the slave culture is to be dependent. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 
and I apologize to go, but they, they always, I'm always going back to that field order number three. Uh, um, the, you'll be no more slave and master, but employer, employee. That's what is you're that talking about? Same, uh, yes. Is, ain't that the same relationship? Yeah. Of dependency? I mean, the name has changed. I mean, it's right there. It's right there. And then you make a you make the intermediary because um, one thing and you know one of the presenters, brother Akil, when he made that point in his presentation at the at the conference in relationship to you know you when you're solving a problem, you're supposed to solve a problem to give somebody else a problem to solve. If we're acting as first class citizens. If we're taking control, self-determining, then then we're creating a problem for somebody else. But if we're not, then we're we have a problem that we have to solve. Exactly. And 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 notice how history kind of goes around, Richard. After that civil war, for a period of about twenty-five years, mm-hmm. we were acting that out as a people. Yes. It, it caused a problem for the government and powers that be and you see what happened so let's do it again i don't i don't listen i don't i'm not i'm I'm not under any illusion that there won't be a backlash or or objection to it i know it will because we live Mm -hmm. in a racist society but we need to do it especially in areas where we control the population we need to do it we have to do this it's no other alternative. And we, we're seeing the transition, the, the business transition to the South. We're seeing, I mean, we did, I mean, we're seeing more and more as we talk to activists in the South. We're, we're seeing big business. Um, and as, uh, as that brother Burrell said, um, a different types of, he didn't call it plantations but different types of industry because the auto industry and, and what's the other Amazon, they're moving to the South. If we have this kind of challenge going on, who do you think is going to take over controlling that economy? Yeah, you know, will. and I didn't realize all of some of the things he was saying tonight about the, the, you know, the, the shipping magnet, basically, that Memphis is. Right. The distribution. Yeah, the distribution. Hydroelectric, yeah. hydroelectric energy. I mean, like these and, are. And, and also, Richard, the relationship that he, that Mason has with Memphis. I didn't really. Did you hear him talk about the agreements that they had? Mm-hmm. That whole thing of a, with, the, with that, um, the, 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 which was when we talked to the vice, was she vice mayor? Mm-hmm. Um, she mentioned that the whole thing of the, um, Oh man, it was the the sewage system. Yeah, she mentioned about that, but I didn't know they had a relationship as far as agreements with the city right. of Memphis. Right. Hmm. So it's it's uh yeah. So it, it's kind of ironic, Richard, that you didn't had we didn't had two men on here. Brown, uh, Judge Brown, is running for mayor of Memphis. Hmm. And and uh, and uh, Mr. Burrell had ran for mayor 
well, wait a minute, they was thrown off the ballot. I guess mm-hmm. like they was trying to do with Brown. They mm-hmm. successfully threw him off the ballot, but then had to reinstitute him at the 11th hour, and it was basically too late. Running for office down there, who they're very familiar with. You heard Judge Brown say that him and Thomas Burrell <laughs> did things together and they had to uh, have some weapons to kind of back it up. <laughs> like, we had to get a little, get our gun, and you talk about, you know, it was it wasn't no 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 you know when we talk when we hear this you you, you know it, it refutes the idea that uh in the south men were not trying to protect their position it's the it's all of us have to be on the same accord all of us have to be about the same all of us have to have the same information regardless if we're there and it's interesting symbolically judge brown is with law and uh, um, Sabrell is with Lane. <laughs> and ain't they was the two components that are the elements of power? Yeah. Or people? Yeah. So, listen, the, the struggle continues. We'll be moving forward. <laughs> wow. Listen, before I... Before we wind things up today, uh, just uh, remind, give you a reminder, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Hushi, always interesting topics and dialogue on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on in the week, uh, you know, I, the, the summit is over, Richard, so we'll be looking for Brother Patrick to kind of start things back up again on Thursday <laughs> at uh, from 7 to 8. Uh, Mississippi on the move, the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi with Brother Pat- Patrick Lumumba's host on Friday. Time for Awakening is back from 8 until uh, Saturday, 7 to 9. The Elders of Sankofa with Janine James's host, Dr. Janine James, and Sunday. Time for an Awakening is back from 7 until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon Or you're watching your children playing after school They seem to be